The Athletic. Let's talk about six, baby. Let's talk about you and me. Let's talk about all the good things and the bad things that may be. Let's talk about six. So the biggest game in league football is just around the corner. Liverpool haven't quite found their mojo, but it's United who are in crisis. Is this one a leveller? Or are the cards heavily weighted in Liverpool's favour? That plus a new book looking at the fiercest rivalry around will talk the history of the game as detailed in Red on Red. If you're not already a subscriber to The Athletic, you can read all of our articles on Liverpool as well as everything else on the site if you head to theathletic.com forward slash Liverpool pot. Right now, there is a special price. A pound a month for six months. That's a pound a month for six months. So go to theathletic.com forward slash Liverpool pot. I'm Steve Hothersall. On the Red Agenda, we have James Pearce and the BBC Sports Chief Football Writer Phil McNulty to look ahead to Manchester United against Liverpool. Liverpool, James, haven't quite got off to that flying start that many predicted. I think we thought perhaps in the first couple of games uh, the results might have been um, a little bit more positive. Two draws, and given the nature of this league, you can't really do that. Yeah, it it just raises the stakes, doesn't it, ahead of what is always a huge game anyway, uh, going to Old Trafford. And Liverpool just simply have to deliver. You know, by by failing to win those first two games, it just cranks up the pressure on Monday night. Two very different performances, I'd say, so far. You know, one one really flat, poor display at Craven Cottage, where they made so many mistakes and and certainly didn't de- deserve anything more out of it. I thought we did see a decent reaction against Palace, but they failed to make it count, having dominated that opening half hour, and then again they. They struggled to react to falling behind against a run of play. And the Nunes red card obviously just made things a hell of a lot more difficult. You know, in the end, you had to admire the fact that they managed to get something out of it. But yeah, two points from two games that before a ball had been kicked, you would have expected them to win. City already four points ahead of them. You know, it seems crazy at this stage, but it almost does feel like a must win at Old Trafford on Monday night. Phil, great to have you on. We're going to talk a little bit about your book um, later on. Obviously, you're right across the Premier League. And I just want to give you a little stat on uh, on how many points you can actually afford to drop and still be considered to be in the race. There's a piece on The Athletic now. In the recent six seasons, the average points total required to win the league is 94.8. In that period, the champions have only dropped points in more than nine games once. So in other words, you've got nine games in a season where you can afford to drop points, Phil. I think that's a sign of the standards that Liverpool and Manchester City have set. Um, they've fought each other, apart from maybe when Liverpool won it very convincingly and City have done it. We've had these last day dramas and the, the, the standards that they've set are so high that draws, as James has suggested there, now feel like defeats. I mean, I was leaving Anfield on Monday night and a lot of Liverpool fans were talking about this four-point gap that had already opened up. And this is after two games. And I think that's a result of the standards that, that they've set for each other. It is only two games. As James said, you, you get that feeling that they do not want to drop any more points when they go to Old Trafford on Monday night. How much do you think it does heighten the pressure on Monday, James? Yeah, huge. I think because I think there are different levels, aren't there? And of course, you look down the East Lanks Road at the minute and, and they are an absolute mess. I think any Liverpool fan that wants a sense of perspective after two disappointing results, you know, it's there for you for all to see. But 
yeah, it doesn't take away from the fact that the bar is set so ridiculously high. And I, and I think you could almost feel that in the atmosphere at Anfield the other night, where once Liverpool went behind, it it almost there was almost like a, a the anxiety was crazy for for like August, and and that does that does go back to to what City have done, and you know it doesn't feel like that long ago where it would be like you know could probably you know afford to lose four or five games over a season. I think it used to feel like you know if you lost five, then that probably would be too many. But you know now you've got a situation where what Liverpool lost twice last season and still still weren't crowned champions. So um, so yeah, the injury situation obviously has made it more difficult at the moment. But still, you know with the players that that Klopp has has got available at the minute, if Liverpool apply themselves in the right way and get anywhere close to the heights they reached at Old Trafford last season, where you know. They absolutely demolished United that day. Then they'll have too much for them. Crazy how the stress levels can get even higher, can't they? When you do so well. But actually, as you mentioned there, you look down the other end of the M62 and and you do see a real crisis. Phil, is this is this a game that's going to be played against the backdrop of protests? Are we aware of of what's going to be happening on game day? Well, there's this talk of empty Old Trafford, isn't there? The the I'm not sure whether this meant don't go in or go in and then come out. But Manchester United fans are intent on making their feelings known about the Glazers. There's been interesting speculation regarding Jim Ratcliffe possibly having an interest in the club. And, and But again, at the moment, the, the Glazers show no inclination to sell the club as a whole. I think they've had a very poor transfer window. The, the Frankie de Jong situation appears to have dragged on endlessly. I mean, I think he'd clearly rather sort of nail his hand to the coffee table than join Manchester United the way he's <laughs> carrying on. He's just not interested, is he? And quite rightly, I think his financial situation at Barcelona is needs sorting anyway. But if he really wanted to go to Man United, I think he would have settled that now. And I just think when you look at how they operate, Manchester City are linked with Haaland and Phillips. They buy them, no messing. Liverpool, last season, Luis Diaz, this summer after the departure of Sadio Mane, Darwin Nunez. When Liverpool are linked with players, they very rarely get away now. They're sort of linked with him. Two days later, they're done. And just the way that the two clubs are operating in general, um, I think it's a chasm now. And certainly when you watch Manchester United play, there seems to be no no sort of plan or structure. Or I mean, they were absolutely demolished in the first 34 minutes by Brentford, who picked on their weaknesses and exploited them to the full. And I just think there's been no clear strategy on transfers for a very long time now. But you would have thought with a new manager coming in, it would be right. This is what we want. These are selection of targets we present to you. I just think the contrast between the way Manchester United, the team and the club operate and the way Liverpool and we can throw in Manchester City do their business, there's just, they're just a million miles apart. And while Liverpool have not, as you said, Steve, got, got their mojo yet this season, I still personally think that they will have too much for Manchester United on Monday night, injuries or not. If it is the case, have we gone past the point, James, where actually this fixture is a leveller? It's, it's the famous old saying, wasn't it? Oh, it's a derby, it becomes a leveller. But actually, it feels like we're in, a, in an entirely different spectrum now when it comes to Liverpool against Manchester United in the past couple of years. Yeah, yeah, it does. I mean, it didn't, it didn't in the early years of the Klopp reign. You think, you know, it was only, what, two seasons ago that Liverpool won there for the first time under Klopp. There were times when, despite... Liverpool being much more, you know, the, the the dominant of the two forces that that they went to Old Trafford and did seem a little bit inhibited, almost, you know, like they they felt they went out like they were almost playing like the United of old rather than the the current United team, and that there were some draws in games that they really should have won. 
but yeah, certainly the last couple of seasons, you know, last season, to, you know, to beat them five nil and four nil over the two games. I mean, I think I think both times you kind of felt. I remember going to the games thinking, as you said, Steve, you know, surely United won't be as bad as they have been because I think back to the nineties when, you know, of course, you know, Liverpool fans were gazing up at United and the jealousy of having to watch them pick up trophies all the time. Liverpool were never battered by United like that. They would always raise it. You know, it, Liverpool's problem was that they'd beat United one week and then go and lose at Coventry the next. It was unbelievable, really, to see United roll over and be so spineless as they were in the two games last season. And I don't think we've seen anything since Ten Hag has taken over to give you the belief that there's any more of a, of a, of a backbone that's, that's been instilled. I mean, you know, when you, when you think about strategy and style... I, I couldn't even tell you what is Manchester United's transfer strategy. It's just like, I genuinely thought it was a wind-up, that stuff about Marco and Altovic. You know, you know, when you know, we're in silly season at the moment, aren't we, with the windows still open? And you thought, well, that can't be true. You know, that's, that's just one of those crazy rumours. And then you find out, well, it is true. And, you know, people will debate whether Liverpool have done enough in the market. You know, of course, there's a lot of talk at the minute about should they have brought in another midfielder with the injury situation? But I think at least with Liverpool, you can say there's a clear plan there. And as Phil said, you know, they've gone for players early. It it baffles me, to be honest, what United's scouting network is. It's just a very, very bizarre setup. And I think the other big contrast is you look at the unity and the spirit that's in that Liverpool squad and the way they fought for each other and scrapped after going down to 10 against Palace the other night. You know, when was the last time you saw that from a Man United team? You know, all the briefing and the backstabbing that goes on behind the scenes and stuff leaking out of the dressing room. It's, um, I think if he didn't know already, I think the last couple of weeks have certainly opened Ten Hag's eyes to what he's taken on. The contrast between the clubs is just marked, isn't it? It's massive and it makes you wonder how on earth Manchester United have, have got to this point. If we, if we just look at the basic quality on the pitch, Phil... And I don't know whether BBC Sports will be doing this again. Do any, if you did a combined team, do any Manchester United players even get into a Liverpool team? It's a very hard question, that. And I, there's none of them, to me, that you'd put in and say he is an absolute shoo-in for that team. I really can't think of any right off the top of my head. Um, you wouldn't put Ronaldo in there now, I don't think, because he's, you know, for the best will in the world. And he is amazing for his age. I'm not sure he'd get in there. A couple of seasons ago, after his good start at United, you might have thought about Bruno Fernandes. But when was the last time you saw Bruno Fernandes play well? It's very hard to think of anybody I would put in and say, yes, he definitely deserves to be there. And I think to expand on the point that James made, over many years, both clubs have been up and down. But when they played each other, the team that was down could always raise its game and give the other one a game and beat them. Last season, I think what hurt Manchester United fans that we spoke to was the fact that in both of those games, they never looked like winning from the first minute. I mean, you can talk about the 5-0 at Old Trafford because obviously 5-0 at Old Trafford, incredible results, all that that meant. But if you think about the game at Anfield as well, the 4-0 game at Anfield, that was just as much of a humiliation. Remember the start of the second half when the referee had problems with his kit? And the Manchester United players kept themselves warm by just passing the ball around for a bit. And large portions of Anfield were, were chanting Ole because they were basically stringing two or three passes together amongst yeah. themselves. Yeah. And that was that is so embarrassing. It's so humiliating. I've, I've seen Manchester United. I've covered games where Manchester United have lost 4-0 at Anfield. I remember a game in about 1990 when Peter Beardley scored a hat-trick. 
And obviously, I can't remember exactly what that what happened in that game, but I remember it being a game. It was a game of football between two very good teams. But that at uh, at Anfield, well, twice Anfield and Old Trafford, it was just humiliating for Manchester United, and Liverpool just rolled them over. And at, at, at Old Trafford, you know, you could almost say at five 0 after about an hour, Liverpool more or less declared. Then they had it sort of won. They why do we need to extend ourselves? You know, bigger battles ahead. Uh, and I think that you know, it's just. The, the, the chasm between the two clubs at the moment is just, it's its a million miles wide, really. Mm. That that Anfield fixture, of course, last season saw one of the great 45-minute displays from Thiago, who was just imperious. Now, he's a, he's a massive miss, isn't he? But there's, there's quite a few on that injury list and Liverpool as well without Nunez. So, even with what they're missing, how do you see this team heading into this game, James? Well, I think it'll be a similar team to the other night. I think the, the good news is that there's a decent amount of hope that Roberto Firmino will be fit. So you would expect him to come back in and, and lead the line with, with Salah on one side and, and Diaz on the other. I'd expect Joe Gomez to start a centre-half. You know, The other night, Klopp explained that you know, he hadn't trained fully in the build-up to that Palace game. That was the reason why they didn't think he could... he could start the game. But I, I thought he was brilliant when he came on, Gomez. You know, we, we talked the other day about you know how Trent had almost like a free role to go wherever he wanted in that last 20 25 minutes and a lot of that was down to you know how good Gomez was at, at almost filling two defensive roles so um yeah huge opportunity for Joe Gomez i think if you're him you know rewind a few weeks and people have probably would have been saying well you know, maybe a bit of a strange decision to sign that new contract because you're looking at it thinking well you know your fourth choice center back in a world cup year it just shows how quickly things can change in football with Canate's knee injury. You know, Matip's done his groin. And now Joe Gomez should be absolutely licking his lips at the prospect of proving himself and proving that he, he can be Van Dyke's partner for an extended period this season because you know that he's now got that, that stage to perform on. And then I, I guess the other decision for Klopp will be what he does with his midfield. You know, I'm sure Jordan Henderson will come back into the, the, the team, probably in place of Milner. And then... Probably a toss-up between Harvey Elliott and Naby Keita for the other the other spot. I think it would be harsh to drop Harvey Elliott after how influential he was the other night. You know, you'd say maybe obviously Keita's got the the more experience of playing in bigger games, but Keita is short of match time. That's the other thing. You know, you have to go back a few weeks now for the last time that he, he got some decent minutes under his belt because he only came on very late on. I think it was in the in the Community Shield and then was out ill for a week. So. Um, yeah, you know, there's still a, a huge number of players missing for Liverpool, but I think we saw enough for, from the Palace game the other night to still have the, the belief that they can go there with what what he's got still standing and, and, and be too strong for United. Quick thought on Naby, James. We've talked a little bit in the past on his contracts. Obviously not signed a new one. I think there's quite a, an influential journalist in Germany. Uh, I think he's the guy who broke the news of Mane's departure, who's written some stuff about um, Naby and said that he's perhaps a little bit unhappy and maybe it isn't a certainty he'd sign for Liverpool again. Yeah, well, Liverpool's reaction to those reports was that, you know, if if Naby Keita is unhappy, then he certainly hasn't articulated that to, to anyone at Liverpool at the moment, that they insist those discussions over a new deal are, are ongoing, that they, they still want him to stay. They want to try and negotiate an, an extension. Um, they've been talking about a new four-year contract and those talks all all go on. So um, if there is un- any un- unhappiness, then you know you could probably say it probably works both ways in terms of a player that hasn't 
delivered on a consistent basis for Liverpool. And, you know, we're still debating over, you know, whether he should be starting big games. And, he's, you know, he's missed a lot of football, very stop-start Liverpool career in terms of the injuries and the illnesses and everything along the way. So, um, so yeah, you know, clearly a decision has to be made there one way or the other because, you know, you're, you're in a situation now where you probably know that, you know, I, I don't see any situation really where he leaves in this window. I'd be amazed. I think it would take a really big offer for Liverpool to think about that and I, I, I don't really see where that where that that would come from but you know if they don't get him tied down in the next couple of months then then you know you're going to be losing him on a on a free next summer right just before we get to um the book this fantastic new book that's out read on red uh, a thought from you phil on on nunez's um dismissal on Monday, you, you were there at Anfield on second glance and, and looking at it. What, what's your perspective on what he did? Well, my perspective hasn't changed, really. It, it was just a, a moment of madness. Seems to have been, judging by his previous record, out of character. He'd been sort of wound up, if you like, by Anderson throughout the game, but not in any sort of overt way. It was just his sort of usual argy-bargy, if you like, between, between defender and, and attacker. And he just obviously, it was seemingly just a moment of red mist and he can have no excuses for being sent off. It was a very stupid thing to do. What you hope is that, and certainly from what he's articulated since, he, he's learned his lesson. Um, I can't imagine it's not the sort of treatment he's, he's never had before, given where he's played his football. And I just wonder, I watched him on Monday and maybe he was just, because it was his home Premier League debut, maybe just trying a little bit too hard to impress, got frustrated as the game went on. And then this moment, uh, and, and he snapped and he's done what he's done. I think Klopp was right to say he was going to let him sleep on it. Um, I can't imagine Jurgen Klopp applying the big stick to him. I think he would have you know, had a, a, a reasoned chat with, with, with Nunez. And obviously the, the, the point of it is that Nunez must now have to, have to learn his lesson. If you are learning a lesson, you learn it, you know, best to learn it very early. Um, but th- there can be no excuses. My perspective is still the same. It was an act of madness, totally unnecessary. He let his teammates and, and the fans down. But luckily for, for him, I pick out Luis Diaz in particular as someone who rose to the challenge of Liverpool's numerical disadvantage. He's got that fantastic goal. I mean, there was a moment as well, I don't know if you remember it in the second half, where uh, Diaz chased back about 40 yards and, and won the ball back pretty much on the halfway line or, or almost into the opposition half. But yeah, same view as on Monday. It was just an act of madness. As, as Gary Neville said, sometimes you can't explain what you do in a match. You do something and afterwards think, why have I done that? He's learned his lesson. It will be painful for him to sit three games out, particularly next Monday, given the significance of the game. And you just have to hope he's learned his lesson. And really, he, he would, he would, you would have to think he would because he, you, know, you just can't do that. And I think he, even by the time he got to the dugout, he'd have been thinking, what, what have I just done? You know, so... Hopefully, lesson learned and, and move along. And of course, uh, the other madness is is sort of some of the communication that Joachim Anderson had on on social media, James. And you, you've written about that on the the Athletic. I mean, some of the messages he's been sent, death threats, and it's absolutely vile. These, these aren't proper fans. No, no, I know it's um, it's just depressing, isn't it? The, we're talking about something like that yet again. You just wonder what goes goes on in these people's heads that they, you know, the the, the, the and that anyone feels they've got the right to send anyone messages like that, let, let alone let alone a guy who, you know, as Phil said, actually did absolutely nothing wrong. Like he, he only, when you look, even look back at the montages from the game, he only did what you'd expect 
any Liverpool defender to do up against a big physical presence up front. Yeah, just grim. And um, it goes back to what we've talked about before, isn't it? In terms of the, the social media companies have to do more to like to try and clamp down on this because... You know, it's not a Liverpool thing. It's you know, it, 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 you get this every single week, don't you? With every every big flashpoint, you know, especially in the Premier League, and you know, and of course, it's it's fans from all around the globe. It's not just you know a, a thing that applies to kind of fans here. It's it's a massive, massive problem. But um, yeah, just horrible, horrible to see, and just hope that those people who who sent messages like that are held to account because they should be able to get away with it. Okay, let's talk red on red. Brand new book, written uh, in part by Phil. So Phil McNulty, Scouser, and a, and a Manchester man as well, Mancunian and Jim White. Two of you good mates. What was the what was the idea behind it? Getting down to uh, you know to uncover what lies beneath this rivalry. Well, the, the the admission I have to make is that the idea was nothing to do with me or Jim. It was it was my wife's idea, so I can cough to that quite happily. Uh, she is a Liverpool fanatic. And she was born on May the 25th, so she enjoyed her birthday in 1977 and 2005 in particular. And she just said, you know, it's such a great rivalry, but there's so much more to it. Um, there's the football, but there's also political, cultural, musical, historical, even a bit of fashion and hooliganism. And I thought maybe, great idea, but maybe we need a Mancunian eye to have a look at it. I mean, Jim's a great writer, a huge Manchester United fan. And as soon as we started collaborating on the book, we found that everybody we approached to talk about this were just incredibly keen to discuss it. It was a rivalry that had lots of history, lots of emotion. I mean, you, you, we spoke to Phil Thompson, and Phil Thompson was, was absolutely fantastic. He told the story of in, in 1999 when uh, Liverpool had been knocked out of the FA Cup by Manchester United in pretty horrible fashion late on at Old Trafford. So Gerard Houllier had booked them away for a week somewhere, you know, take the lads away, bit of team bonding. They were flying out from Manchester Airport on the same day as, as Manchester United were going to the Champions League quarter-final. And lots of fans were there as well. Of course, they saw Phil and started taunting him. You know, he, he said, they, he said I'm instantly recognisable, slightly poking fun at himself. Um, so they really got stuck into him. And he said, of course, what I should have done was say nothing, let it wash over me. And the phrase he used was, but you know me. And of course, what happened next was, of course, Phil started firing back at them. And it developed into quite a... Uh, he was laughing about it, saying, I should never have done it, but I couldn't help myself. But loads of the people we asked to speak to, they were just so keen to discuss this rivalry and relive their memories that, in the end, it became a really enjoyable experience and, and quite fascinating to, to see how people view the rivalry. Phil, one of the, one of the things that struck me when I, when I first tweeted about the book um, was the number of fans of other clubs saying, you know, how can you possibly call it the, the fiercest rivalry in world football? And people obviously make the judgments about, well, you know, obviously you've had the emergence of Man City in recent years, obviously Chelsea before that. So what, what is it, do you think, that sets, sets this one apart from the rest? I think it's the global nature of it for a start. I mean, we talked to uh, Danny Murphy, who, said, who obviously has this great history of winning goals at Old Trafford. And he was a Mas- in Masai Mara on some sort of safari. Some guy came up to him in the full Masai Mara outfit, pointed at him, said, Danny Murphy, Manchester United. And uh, yeah, that's right. That's what, he, that's what this guy remembered him for. And Jim was also saying that he, he was he was in Addis Ababa working on a piece, and he was in the main square, and they were erecting big screens. And he said to this guy, "What's happening here?" He said, "Well, Liverpool are playing Manchester United, and we do this every time they play each other." 
they erect giant screens in the main square of Addis Ababa and they watch Manchester United versus Liverpool and fans of both clubs gather in their kit and everything and it's quite a sort of very emotion-filled occasion and fantastic apparently. And Jim said, well, do you do that for anybody else? Do you do it for the Champions League final, any big international games? And this guy said, no, 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 only Liverpool versus Manchester United. So while I get what, what, what James saw the reaction, what about Glasgow, you know, what about Boca Juniors, what about this, that and the other? It's the global reach of that game. I mean, you saw it when they went on pre-season tour, the yeah. thousands and thousands of people who were at James would have probably witnessed it, people at the airport. And while I, I take the point of all the others about their rivalry, I think it's the global reach of, of, of Liverpool versus Manchester United that makes it, in my, in my opinion, such a great rivalry. The Liverpool-Manchester City rivalry, it, I, I don't think it's anywhere near it. Everybody said that. Man United fans said it. Liverpool fans said it. And one of the phrases they all used was, you can't invent a rivalry. <laughs> it's a footballing rivalry between two outstanding teams, but it doesn't have that history, you know, just rivalry is the word for it, that, that Manchester United and, and Liverpool has. Maybe younger generations might grow up to feel like that. But for me, and the justification for calling it what we have called it, and yeah, we did get a reaction to that, is just the sheer global reach and scale of the rivalry between these two clubs. If you're into your tactics and football analytics and you're looking for a deeper understanding of the game, you can join me, Ali Maxwell, along with Michael Cox and the rest of the Athletics data team for our Football Tactics podcast. Find new episodes every week on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places. We're sponsored for this episode of Walk On by LinkedIn, so it's only right that we crowbar in a reference to Liverpool's super slick recruitment process while we talk them up. Because when you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. And that's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like Arnie Slot, probably. In any given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. In fact, on LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. So hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash walk. That's L-I-N-K-E-D-I-N dot com slash walk to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. We tend to think of the attitude between the two fan bases towards each other as hatred, especially in, in modern day. But underlying that, how much did you find there was a respect as well? Because actually going back in, and in previous years, whether it be Matt Busley and Busby and Bill Shankly, or even, and I've, you know, I've done several events with Kenny Dalgleish, and he talks very fondly about Sir Alex Ferguson and actually away from the football pitch, there's a massive respect between each other. Oh, absolutely. And they're always aware of each other. When one is down, the other one is still aware of them. Gary Neville used a great phrase when we spoke to him. He said that even when United were winning everything and Liverpool, you know, Liverpool were still in, con in, in contention for trophies, weren't they? They were never out of contention for trophies, whether it be a cup, maybe not the league. He said, no matter how far behind you felt Liverpool were, the phrase he used was the one club and the one team we always looked in the rear view mirror. That was the word he, the rear view mirror for was Liverpool. What are they doing? Where are they? What are they up to? You know, are they showing signs of reviving? 
And he said, you know, it, it, Liverpool was always that team at the back of his mind that if they got it right, then United could have a serious fight on their hands. And again, going back slightly further, uh, Jan Morby, I think, said that every time, I remember this phrase being used by a few people, I think Graham Souness used it as well, every time anyone signed a new contract at Liverpool or there was a discussion, a wider discussion, Peter Robinson always used to say, the one thing that might get us into trouble is if the other lot get it right. And the other lot he meant was Manchester United. <laughs> the end, he was doing right. But again, it adds to the rivalry. But there's always that respect there of what the other team is up to, how are they progressing? And there's always that, not fear, maybe, that's, a, that's a, maybe too strong a word, that they might suddenly get it right and they will be close rivals again. It will take a long way back to Manchester United at the moment, but you never know. And there is always that thought. And that was certainly dominated a lot of the, the, the respect that we found when we spoke to people. Phil, when, when did the kind of mutual loathing really kick in? Because you, know, you talk in the book about days in the 60s and 70s when United players, if they weren't playing midweek, would go and stand on the cop. And obviously, you can't really imagine, <laughs> can't really imagine Harry Maguire doing that on a Wednesday night off these days. Was it to do with the, obviously, I guess, success also on the other end breeds jealousy as well with the, Liverpool's obviously dominance of the 70s and 80s and then Liverpool being on the other end of it in the 90s? Well, was, was that where it stemmed from? Or? Well, was it, there was an incident in the early 70s that Manchester United were playing games at uh, Old Trafford and there was an incident and they had to play a, a couple of matches at 35 miles away from Old Trafford and strangely enough, they picked Danfield uh, to play a game, I think it was against Arsenal and Clive Tilsley was there and a few other people recounted it that Manchester United fans turned up and went on the cop like this was the symbolic gesture, we're going to stand here. And Clive said that, and other people recall, lots of Liverpool fans turned up to basically drive them off the cop. It was, you know, you can stand, you can be on the Kemlin Road, you can go on the Anfield Road, you can sit, but you cannot go on the cop. And I think in the 70s, there was this groundswell of, of hooliganism. The other thing we, we found, which was mentioned by many, many Liverpool fans in particular, was that lots of antipathy was built up because of the media's treatment of the two clubs. There was a feeling that the... The national newspapers had their offices in Manchester. The northwest base was Manchester. Granada Reports was Manchester. Look North, as it was known then, was Manchester. And basically, Manchester United didn't have to do very much to get a lot of credit. And Liverpool had to do a lot to get a bit of credit. And one incident that was mentioned that, that crystallised that. And uh, we did a chat the other night at Waterstones. And as soon as I started re recount this, a few Liverpool fans immediately provided the punchline, if you like, it was when Liverpool were knocked down to the European Cup by Forrest in the season 78-79, and Liverpool had won it the two previous seasons. The night after they were knocked out, Bernard Reports played a montage highlights from the previous night of Peter Shilton keeping Liverpool at bay, disconsolate Liverpool players trudging off at the end, having their reign as European Cup holders effectively finished. And they then started playing a song called The Party's Over, over the montage. And it was a very provocative thing to do really and um, it was almost like glorying in the fact that Liverpool had slipped up and many Liverpool fans at the time still remember that and I think all those suspicions that Liverpool were being treated differently and not getting the credit they deserved whereas Manchester United were getting more credit than they deserved was crystallised by what happened then so I think it's a combination of factors really but I'd say you tracing it back there was that mutual respect in the 60s but in the 70s it started to become more and more the antipathy, the, the, you know, the, the, 
I hate using the word hatred, but what's you know the, the, the antipathy between the two the two sets of fans and the and the clubs maybe. So the the intensity's changed. I mean, there've been so many important matches between the sides throughout the the decades. The seventy seven FA Cup final, of course, Jimmy Case scored one of the great goals. Liverpool lost. Um, you know the eighty the nineties the the white suits in the FA Cup final. Did did you actually find it hard to pick out the games that actually really mattered? It was quite an interesting process, but what was was interesting was the fact that how they somehow avoided each other in big games. The first one we really picked out was the seventy seven FA Cup final. So we went through, and even the ninety nine game, which we which we picked out as significant for both clubs. Uh, good and bad. Well, even in Liverpool, it was it was good in a way because it was the sort of game that focused Gerard Houllier and Phil Thompson's mind on what Liverpool needed to do, where they needed to be, and it was almost the, the start of the reshaping of that dressing room to get all those big players in that they brought they brought in, uh, you know, the hippier Henshaw people like that. And so it was really just a question of trying to to, to sort of focus in on ten games that meant something in the short and long term. Again, you, you talk about they, they've never met in the Champions League. It's incredible, really, when you think about for quite a long while, three of the last four clubs in the Champions League for quite a while always seemed to be English clubs, didn't they? Whether it was Liverpool, Man United, Arsenal, Chelsea. And Liverpool and Chelsea seemed to be meeting every five minutes, didn't they? Whether it was in the group or quarterfinal, semi they, they, they met all the time, but somehow Liverpool and Manchester United missed each other. And they've always missed each other in, in the title races, haven't they? They've never had that head-to-head that Liverpool and Manchester City have had. And we spoke to a guy called Robbie O'Neill, who you might know, he's an actor from Liverpool. And he said if Liverpool and Manchester United had had the title races that Liverpool and Manchester City have had, they'd be making films about it. He said it would be like Ali versus Frazier. Um, he said, well, that's the one thing the Premier League hasn't had yet, that one-to-one between Liverpool and Manchester United. I'm, I'm not sure it'll happen for, for a while either at the moment, the way things are going. And Phil, you, you you're talking there as well about um, you know it wasn't just on the field, was it that that United left Liverpool behind? You know, certainly in the the you know the early years of the Premier League, it was off it as well commercially. Yeah, I think uh, Manchester United were quick to spot the commercial aspects of it. Um, they were able to rebuild their ground quicker than Liverpool were able to. I think Rick Parry admits that you know Manchester United were quicker than Liverpool to to recognise the potential. Uh, of commerciality and there's also it's interesting speaking to quite a few people including Ricky Fulter yet yeah, Liverpool wanted to wanted to be involved in this commerciality but they still wanted to be Liverpool Football Club they didn't want it to be they didn't want to become a commercial enterprise they wanted it to be a club of the fans and, and the community and the city they didn't want to lose a sense of their identity although remember there was a time when they had the McDonald's cop didn't they remember and, and do you ever recall one single person ever calling it that? It was one of the most pointless pieces of commercialism ever, or sponsorship. So I think that there was an admission that United just got away from them a bit. And that, that's always the danger. It can happen very quickly, can't it? You know, you, you think you're there, Liverpool, well, you know, Champions 1990, couple of tweaks, we'll be fine. You know, I actually, sadly for me, I covered that game in 1990 when Liverpool won the title against QPR. And if you'd have said to anybody leaving the ground that day, you better enjoy this because it's not going to happen again for 30 years. They just would have laughed in your face. They would have thought you were mad. But there certainly was an acceptance that Manchester United were much quicker and more effective into the commercial areas than Liverpool were. And obviously that brought in the, the funds that fueled much of their success. I immediately looked at the chapters and the, the one that drew me in straight away and I went straight for it was the Rafa rant. 
I was I was sat there on the day. It was the bizarrest thing I've ever seen in a press conference. I don't think anything will ever match it again because it it was so preempted by Rafa himself, who'd written this this statement almost like the moment where he lost the psychological mind games against Manchester United and Sir Alex. Yeah, I mean, first of all, it wasn't a rant, was it, Steve? Well, no, it's just an easy way to call it that, isn't it? Yeah, well, what, what happened, we, again, we, again, we were looking into this and we spoke to Jamie Carragher and Jamie Carragher was doing his first piece of punditry ever on the Sunday. Manchester United were playing Chelsea, I think. And so he'd gone in to see Rafa Benitez to clear this, you know, could he basically go and do it? And Rafa Benitez said to him, yeah, sure, you can do it, but just be aware, I'm going to be saying a few things on Friday. And obviously, so he's still thinking, he's thinking about it a couple of days before he even did it. And I don't want to sort of knock down the chapter in a way, but I'm not sure that was the reason Liverpool lost the league that season. I think Liverpool lost the league that season because uh, they drew too many games. I mean, didn't lose many, but drew too many. I think where it was misguided was there was no need for it. It was very early on in the piece. I think it was designed to draw referees' attention to suggestion of favouritism towards Manchester United. And of course, it allowed people to sort of poke fun at, at Rafa, didn't it? You know, Rafa's cracking up, all this sort of stuff. And it, it, it was ill-judged, really. Again, I think it's sort of, in terms of the whole title race, I think Liverpool drew too many games. Man United had this one guy who played two games in his own entire career, Makeda, one of which scored a, a, a vital winning goal. But it was just a bit ill-judged. And I think maybe Jamie, I'll probably else, it drew attention to Liverpool when they were doing perfectly fine. So in that respect, I'd agree with Steve. It was a very strange thing to do. But it was sort of, you know, he used to like to play calculating games, Rafa, didn't he? And that was one that maybe didn't quite work out as, as he hoped it would. Phil, talking of misjudged, another another chapter in the book obviously focuses on the Suarez Evra episode. Do you think that was an example of where this rivalry can sometimes, you know, the emotion just completely clouds you know, common sense almost in terms of obviously people talking in the book, don't they, about, you know, the embarrassment now looking back on wearing those T-shirts at Wigan. And, you know, I'm pretty sure if that had happened in another fixture against another team, that Liverpool would have dealt with all that very, very differently. I think there was a feeling, certainly, uh, the, the two people who we spoke to in particular about that were, were Jamie Carragher and Gary Neville. And they both felt Liverpool fought it more fiercely because it was Manchester United. Yeah, um, they were defending their corner, and you know, as as Jamie says in the end, it was it was embarrassing how it was dealt with. Um, but I do think it was. I, I think you're absolutely right. I think the the layer of Manchester United being in that meant Liverpool fought it maybe in a way they wouldn't have done had it been another club. Um, and I think you know that there's an acceptance now, and I think it was an acceptance fairly quickly afterwards that Liverpool had had, had handled it very badly. Um, and the T-shirts were a misjudgment. But again, as we spoke to those people, we said, you know, that the emotions between the clubs, the rivalry, the element of not being seen to lose, if I can use that word, to Liverpool or Manchester United, that, that certainly played into it. And it was certainly recognised by those who were, were in and around it at the time, definitely. Love the idea of the book, Phil. Brilliantly done. And it's out now. Where, where can people get it? All good bookshops. Independent bookshop, <laughs> all your independent bookshop, and obviously on on Amazon as well. We did a, we did a, an event at Waterstones in Liverpool the other night, and it that was great. People were came across, they were really engaged, and going to events like that and hearing people talk and ask the questions, you, you do realise you know just the, the depth of this rivalry, 
Um, and it, it was, it's been a great experience to do it. And uh, hopefully if people do buy it, they'll enjoy it. But all, all your usual outlets, Steve. Nice, nice selling line. Uh, red on red. And, and all credit should go to Phil's wife, who was the uh, the genius behind all this. Absolutely. So please check it out now. Liverpool and Manchester United, the history of that brilliant rivalry. I uh, just want to give a shout to a piece that James has written at the moment on The Athletic about the new supporters board at Liverpool Football Club, officially launched and largely a result of what happened with the failed Super League fiasco. I think we'll talk uh, in more detail on that in the next Red Agenda because it's a really interesting conversation. But if you want to read James's piece now, it is up. Uh, my thanks to Phil McNulty. Superb to have you on, Phil. And James Pierce, as always. Check those pieces out on The Athletic. And thank you for listening to The Red Agenda. Uh, we'll catch up with you next time after that United game. See you then. <laughs>